Welcome to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. This is Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, it's that time of the year when apples and pears on the brain, you know? Definitely. I, I ordered a new variety today, too. It's a cross between a Honeycrisp and something else, and I can't remember what it's called. I'm so helpful. But I'm super excited oh to God, taste you're it. you're amazingly detailed. <laughs> I'm super excited to taste it when I get it. Are well, that just tells you, crim- you... Are you talking about a Crimson Crisp? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, those are marvelous. They're a little bit denser and a little bit crunchier than honey crisps. And, yeah, I'm like uh, super excited to taste it. Yeah, that's my my daughters love those guys. That's okay, good. That's definitely approved on the snack list of apples. <laughs> yeah. So I'm getting the fr- little girls. You you try to get them to eat it at a Granny Smith, and it's like, Dad, it's too tart. Well, the ones this year too weren't. Sour. They would like the ones we got locally this year. They were unbelievably well for for. Uh, a tart apple. They were quite sweet and really oh, beautiful they, texture. They, they, they always are. No, no. Literally this year they were sweeter than normal. I mean, they were because we used them on the foie gras. And I'm like, I was e- I was eating them, obviously ate the ends while I'm cooking them. And I'm like, oh my goodness, these are really high sugar content. They're super good. Super exciting. Well, yeah. And the, variety, the varieties make things interesting for sure. But it's the time of the year. Like you, you can always get apples in the store, right? Sure. You can... Always get pears in the store, mm-hmm. but the reality is those things have often been in cold storage for long stretches of time. Sure, yes, it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. When you get to like August, September, October, maybe beginning of November for certain varieties, you're still getting things that have not spent time slowly drying out and losing real flavor, and mm-hmm. in in, uh, in cold storage, so. It's it's great that we have food preservation systems um, like that, and that's a basic one. But there's there's a difference in the joy of biting into one of those guys, or cooking with one of those guys. Truly, when it's not that long off the tree. Well, it's just you know it's a lesson we have unfortunately folks have had to relearn, which is that, as you just said, we have everything at our fingertips, and that's not always good. You know, we really should be eating in season. We really should be supporting our local farmers and uh, buying our great local product so that, you know, you do enjoy things at the height of their season when they're their best and also when they have high vitamin content and all the things that are good for you about food. Well, honestly, when, when they've just come, usually that's when the prices are the best. Well, another um, good it, point. It, sure. it, it, it works. It works efficiently in all areas, well, especially from as, economic from economics to pleasure. That doesn't happen a whole lot, right? Well, and especially as high as food product, uh, the cost of everything is right now. It, it makes a big difference yeah. for folks to be able yeah. to buy things at a lower price like that when they're in season. So yeah, that makes that makes a big advantage for people. One of the things my my great grandmother taught me she taught me a lot about different. You know, how fussy I am about produce mm-hmm. uh, and and chasing flavor. It's the stems of things make a big difference. You okay. know, something like an eggplant is very easy. You yes. see a, an eggplant in a store with a brown stem, you know how it's been dried out for a long time. Mm-hmm. You see that bright green, there's almost like a little, you know, l- little burst of color to that stem on the eggplant. You know, it's just off the vine. Yes. Um, or just off the plant, rather. With apples, it's kind of the same thing. If you rub that stem and you can still smell the plant, from your fingers, then then you know it's not that long off the that it's not that long off the tree. Mm-hmm. And it it sounds like a funny thing to do, and and people probably look at you really strangely when you're 
Uh, in the cares? market, in the, in the store, you know, smelling, walking around, <laughs> smelling em. your fingers. <laughs> Let them. But, but, but they, they will tell you the truth. We, we don't use our olfactory senses enough. We look and we see, oh, the bright color. You know, that's, mm-hmm. honestly, that's what like red delicious apples, that, that becomes a that becomes a thing. Well, they're bright and they they look like the ones that are in the storybooks when we're kids. Apples like tomatoes are lots of colors, lots of shapes, lots of sizes. Right. And the, the, the important point is that they have their like honest, authentic characteristics. Um, so when you're, when you're assessing, you know, what to buy that's part of it also um the skin itself will give you an idea um you know it there is uh there is a natural gloss on apples and pears both but with pears you know this the skins you can this the pear itself you can smell it and tell when it's ripe too a lot of people have a hard time telling when pears are ripe they'll wait and wait and wait and then it'll just be soft yeah, yeah, and and they end up with a mess when they try to cut it or do anything. Oh with my it. god! But a ripe pear, oh, so good, so so yeah, so I mean, so good. There, there's something honestly. There's something really particular and essential about that. You cut into it, the aroma, um, that you know, the the skin is even sweet on those guys if you get it exactly right. Oh yeah, I love pear skin. I, I I often will not enjoy eating the apple skin, even though I know it's good for me and it does have great flavor, but. Pear skin, yeah, no problem. I'm 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 chomping right into there. No problem. Just wash it and yeah. eat it. My good grandmother used to peel a pear to make whatever the dish was. Mm-hmm. And then and she would pickle the skins. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. Oh, I like that. But she didn't like that. She grew up in the country. She didn't, she didn't well, want to throw it away. Of course not. Of course. Was, but I've never heard of anybody doing that, that, nevertheless. That's pretty neat. Yeah. It was kind of a sweet pickle, but God, I wish I had met her. They're they're pretty fun. Yeah. Extraordinary woman. Fun. I tell you what, for a bacon sandwich, they're great. Oh, that's fun. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Oh, I like a they're bacon great. sandwich. <laughs> so let's let's talk about let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, some recipes for apples and pears. Let's toss out uh, an apple or a pear recipe. What are you thinking about? So one of the things I like to do is, you know, especially because apples and pears are nice and tender. When they're ripe, they don't need to cook very long. I mean, you're talking like literally a couple of minutes um, because you don't want them to, if you don't want them to break up and make a puree, if you want them well, to hold depends, their body. Depends on the di- depends on the dish. Right. right. So, so uh, right now for the foie gras dish, we're doing um, apple cider, uh, which we're obviously getting locally, and uh, a little bit of saffron and a cinnamon stick and let that cook for about 15 minutes on a slip on a slow simmer. And... Then pull out the cinnamon stick. Use it. You can use it again later because you have not used it enough. There's still a lot of flavor in that cinnamon stick, so just reserve it. And uh, and then I peel and slice the apples and pop them in and let them sort of sit in that hot liquid. If I feel like I need to turn it on for a minute or two, I will. But oftentimes it's just enough. And and really, in the end, not only are you trying to impart flavor into the apple that's not already there, but you're trying to keep them. For us, we're trying to keep them from turning brown. And that's the thing is oxidizing. The thing is, is that we're a restaurant, so we have to prep in the afternoon and get ready for to serve something hours later. And it's very difficult for us to do something like slice an apple for, you know, 50 people or 150 people in the middle of service. Uh, we have too many other things to cook and do during service. So uh, I have to figure out how we can use something, but yet 
make it be the best it can be and be a great accompaniment. And in this case, foie gras just loves fruit. Uh, we all know that. If you eat foie gras, you know it's just and it's a favored accompaniment. Oftentimes, if I try to put a savory prep on a foie gras on a menu, a bunch of people will ask me, oh, do you have any fruit? Could you do it with fruit? So I've kind of given up on the whole savory, you know, totally savory prep on foie gras because that is the preferred way for most folks. But anyway, so yeah, so we uh, on pickup, we will heat those apples in their cooking liquid, which is nice. It's a great way to do so. And you can easily do that at home or you could even at home, you could even eat them straight out of the cooking liquid. It doesn't have to be hot. Um, but uh, I do like it hot for the foie gras. That would also be great with magre. Uh, it would be great with an, any other kind of bird, like a pheasant. We were recently serving um, guinea fowl, which you like so much, and um, it would certainly be nice with that. But you know, I, I am. Who doesn't making, like guinea fowl? Uh, apparently, no one. Uh, we had no problem selling <laughs> guinea fowl <laughs> when I bought it, so yeah. that's nice. Yeah, no, that's such a marvelously flavorful. Honestly, it's the fattiest white meat bird. It has all, all of the moisture, all of the juice that you want to be there. Yeah, well, like you always say, right, you always say it has that pocket of fat, and it does, and that pocket of fat near the breast, near the thigh, oftentimes is so important because uh, a white meat bird like that can dry out really easily. I mean, if you overcook that thing, you're not going to like it at all, and it's just like any, like chicken. I mean, you know, you overcook chicken, it's not good, so, you know, you don't want to dry out any food that you're making. Yeah, but it's it's a great aspect of that bird, and, you know, one of the other things, and you, I'm sure you remember when, back at Savannah, we used to do... uh, and I would put bacon underneath the skin because the birds are so lean. And um, that just helps to self-baste it as it roasts. And, of course, it also imparts bacon flavor, as we were talking about how great bacon is earlier, if you eat it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it does two jobs. It creates flavor and it uh, helps to keep moisture and through basting it's the meat with uh, the, the, the fat. So it, it sort of slowly melts out in the cooking process. I uh- I want to kick in a, a soup that I think is really achievable and it's sort of right on time right yeah. now. All right. What What's coming in, um, in, in droves are a lot of the, the, you know, the, the later harvest vegetables. So Brussels sprouts, uh, broccoli and cauliflower, Romanescu, all, all of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking, uh, Martine through a soup, uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. um, with cauliflower and green apple. And uh, and trying to make and try to explain the process of, of concentrating the flavors, and you know, peeling those green apples, coring them, having them, um, honestly giving them just a little bit of salt, nothing else, and putting them in kind of a slow oven, like a two seventy five three hundred oven for. Oh, so you roasted the l- apples? Just just a little bit, just to concentrate okay. the flavor. Good. Not to not to caramelize them so much, just just uh- to concentrate the flavor. Probably 15, 20 minutes. At what temperature? 300? A, a, slow, a slow oven, like 275, 300. Okay, yeah, all right. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, you it, just like an, an awful lot of soup bases, it's, you get a, a decent amount of, of sweet onion going, not a Vidalia, but I mean like a, a white onion or a, a Spanish onion that has good juice, mm-hmm. not some dried out, gnarly old, grumpy onion. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, and uh, and get that going, sweating for a while, and a bit of butter. And uh, if if you if you use butter, I mean, this is a soup that can be made uh, vegan, honestly. Um, if, if you want yeah. a variation, want sure. a variation, but it was a velouté that I'm sort of headed towards. Um, so that wouldn't be so the butter would make sense. 
Um, but while you're sweating that for a few minutes, you have those roasted apples set aside. The cauliflower, you do a bit of the same thing, just slow oven, um, salt it, break it into the pieces. And for a soup that's going to be pureed like this, you can keep a decent amount of the stems and they have a lot of flavor there. But that does mean you have to puree the bejesus out of it. Mm-hmm. And strain <laughs> and, it. Uh, and, and you're going to have to strain it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to. That's fine. Your it's not a big deal. It's easy to do. Texture's going to be a little bit rough. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and you want probably uh, an apple, apple and a half to to a head of cauliflower. So it's a, it's probably a, you know, 70, 80% cauliflower soup with a big accent from the, from the apple. Mm-hmm. Um, the onions are sweating, then the cauliflower and the apples, you know, you, once they're concentrated, you cut them up into smaller pieces. If you, if you, if you, that's not to be that small cause you're going to tear them up after a while. Um, but get them into that pot, raise that heat a little bit and, and let it work just a little bit. And then you're going to add your stock. And the question then becomes, are you using a white chicken stock or are you using a brown chicken stock? Um, if are you using a vegetable stock? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't use a mushroom stock if you're doing a vegetable stock. No, you want something as light and clean. It's dominated more by uh, by uh, you know mirepoix and uh, and other aromatic vegetables. You know, or you could just use water. Yeah, you could. You definitely could. Mm-hmm. Um, or water and a bit of wine. You know, just uh, well, of course, may, may, maybe uh, Pinot Blanc or something Malzas. Something pretty. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like four to one water to the to the wine, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then you work it for a bit. You know, twenty Seasoning. thirty minutes. Just salt and pepper. You can go a lot of directions with it. With with this, I I want to go. I would go pretty neutral. I w- I would go. Um, uh, honestly, you could do a little bit of sumac. You know, you could add a little bit of fennel to the onion, and do a few toasted ground fennel seeds. You know, there there are a lot of directions you can go. That I would I would say that's kind of the uh, that's up to whoever's doing the driving, mm-hmm. what direction they want to go. For me, I would use a little bit of sumac, maybe a little bit of the fennel. Um, you could use a little bit of uh, allspice. You know, might be nice, but I don't, I don't think it's go strong in any direction um, because the garnish that I have in mind, and that and like any velouté, you're gonna let that cook for a while, and you're gonna add a little bit of cream. Um, Lighter if you want the soup to be lighter. Uh, you have to let that cook. You know, how long do you think it usually takes to get that properly reduced and incorporated in, the, you know, what? 15. Another 20 minutes. Yeah, 15, yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you puree the whole thing and it, correct it for salt and a little bit of pepper. The garnish that I want for that is a curry oil. Yeah, you know, that that's good. Just a, a neutral or canola or... Uh, or corn oil. Yeah, with, we, we uh, use corn oil. Yeah, but that's and uh, and that curry oil is an easy easy garnish. If you go if you want to go a little bit lighter with the soup and you want to add a little bit more acid to it, you could be using Greek yogurt instead of the of the cream. Mm-hmm. Um, and that certainly doesn't need the cook time either. Right. That could that could be an after the fact, at it at, at the very end with the blender. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that. I, I've always liked that particular combination. So. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. But that's a that's a that's an easy one, an economic one, and right in season. And again, a little bit up to the driver, the path that they take to get there. So, 
Anyway, when we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, we're going to spend some more time on apples and pears, dig into a little bit of fall vegetables, like the aforementioned Brussels sprouts, <laughs> and uh, which somehow bizarrely, while everyone hated them over when we were kids, boy, everyone loves them now. They, yeah, it's made a big change. And uh, and wines this time of the year, a lot of Central European wines, like I said, on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. <laughs> Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today it's all apples and pears and autumnal. And uh, we spent some time in the first segment on uh, my apple cauliflower soup. And Cindy's, uh, what would you call that garnish for the foie gras you were talking about? Uh, More apples, of a, poached and saffron and cinnamon. That's it. No fancy name. Something of uh, a la minute chutney. <laughs> sort of, but more crispy. You know, that's the thing. Okay. You know, it's not a long okay. cook. It's a slow, a quick cook. And I want it to be crispy for the, yeah. for the foie gras. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you were, you, were, you were saying something about Brussels sprouts and how people like them now at the end of the last segment. And it's, it's, it's wild. Oh, oh my it's God. Like if it, you, that was the, the, the voice of doom. If you put, back in the day, if you put Brussels sprouts on something, you know, 30 years ago, you weren't going to sell it. <laughs> it just wouldn't sell. No, no. It, it used to, what we used to call a menu deal breaker. Yeah, right. Well, you, know, you knew, you knew if you put olives on a dish, oh, a certain percentage oh of gosh. people were not going to order it. <laughs> okay. If you put eggplant on a dish, a certain percentage of people were just it's not going to order it. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And how the Brussels sprouts right in that same category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. And so I, I have a question for you about Brussels sprouts, Tony. Have have your children seen the Brussels sprouts on the vine or I'm not on the vine, I, on the stem of the, the plant? I have the best photograph from when Odalette was five of her holding a stalk that's almost as tall as she is <laughs> of Brussels sprouts. And she is so happy. Oh, that's cool. So happy. That. One, because it's the crazy little Christmas tree of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> And and two because I it's her favorite. It it's her favorite vegetable. Oh, that's awesome! It is it is her favorite. Well, I've that's a good job a by million, her parents because uh, I made that's it a million like a different ways. Miracle! Mm-hmm. I made it a million different ways. I've I've, I've done them with uh, garlic and soy and and uh, and, and she likes and sesame, that. Those are and sesame. Yep, those are adult flavors. I've, I've done it with uh, with uh, Brussels sprouts with a, a little bit of soy, honey, clove, and some pear. That sounds good. And at the la- and at the last minute, like a little stir fry kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and both of those. And I've also just done it where um, they're roasted with and tossed with a little bit of butter and onion, and that's that. But that well, girl, yeah, yeah, she they they both like Brussels sprouts. But oh my gosh, that's great! I've always that thought is, that, that would be just so much fun to show a child. You know, this is how they grow, because you know when we again when we were growing up, you just saw them in little packages. You know, they certainly weren't. I'd I'd never seen that until I became a chef. That they I had no idea they grew that way. That's a so fascinating she, little vegetable. So last fall, um, I I'd gotten one, and I'm like, oh, let we're gonna make a special Brussels sprouts dish, and she was all excited. <laughs> And we we and I showed her how to 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 peel the leaves 
apart, you know. Oh yeah, that's to fun. pull all of the leaves. That, and I was gonna make like a little salad with like with like you know some kind of sweet apple, like a honey crisp or something like that. I forget at the, what it was at the time, and and the Russell sprouts, and uh, and and pine nuts. And I I organized the whole thing. And she helped. She loves helping. So she's peeling and peeling and peeling these little tiny Brussels sprouts with the tiny fingers. And mm-hmm. and I, and I make the salad and and uh, just a simple vinaigrette with like a lighter olive oil, like a, the extra version from Ligoria, and uh, and with the with the sweet apples and the toasted pignoli and mm-hmm. and the sprouts and and a little bit of shallot and the vinegar and the dressing and and a little bit of mustard. And she's like so excited it looks so pretty it's this big you know mountain of of brussels sprout leaves right mm-hmm. and then she, the face that she made when she put it in her mouth is <laughs> dad you'd ruin these brussels sprouts oh no you ruined them <laughs> wow. so hate hate of salad mm. trumps mm-hmm. love of brussels sprouts that's the one thing i'd say beware okay yeah, you know it's funny because I was in the dislike of Brussels sprouts category when I met you, and um, you were the dislike of uh, many vegetables uh, well, true. category when I met you. True, true, true. But uh, I, I still don't love Brussels sprouts. Uh, and on top of that, my farmer uh, who lives next door to me, who farms my land, uh, announced to me that uh, he he put in a patch um, that's available to me of turnips. And I'm like, oh, no, <gasps> no, 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 no. Oh, turnips oh, and no. turnip greens? Oh, no. Awesome. Yeah, and I know how much you like those. And that, that I mean, I, okay, I can eat. You love, the, the two things you love to work with are Brussels sprouts and turnips that I really don't like cooked. Uh, I mean, Brussels sprouts I like cooked, yeah. but turnips I don't like cooked at all. I mean, I grew up, my mom would do slices of turnips as a snack after school with a little tiny bit of salt on. And so I've always liked turnips that way but i cannot stand cooked turnips still to this day uh so when he was very kindly telling me that i had all these turnips i i could have access to and what would i like to do with the tops i'm like oh my <laughs> oh the greens are so good yeah no we'll use we'll, get, no, get, i'll get, happily get use them, them i'll happily use james them. yeah yeah oh no get we'll, we'll all james. use them oh totally we'll all use them but I mean, that's, my initial they're, reaction they're, was oh i didn't know that was happening yeah, yeah. Turn, turnips and turnip greens for like a brazato, simple brazato. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a veal shoulder, a beef short rib, something like that, uh, a, a lamb shank or or a, a, a veal neck. You know, that's an easy. You make a a, a potato and turnip puree, mm-hmm. and you and you wilt the greens and and get them, you know, cook them a good bit and get them and maybe a little bit spicy, a little bit garlicky, and have that as a, and with a little bit of chili and have that as a garnish. Yeah, I've never with the, had with the brisato and the natural. That's oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that sounds that's, good. That's I, happy stuff. For I've me. never had the turnip greens to work with that I recall. So you know, yeah, we'll, we'll work with them. And I was also thinking about braising some with a little bit of pork product um, as well, which I'm sure would be delicious. But yeah, I'm sure there's a million different ways you can cook turnip greens, and I'm going to well, need to figure. Also, that out. great thing to work into uh, bean soup. You know, yeah, like if you're working with red lentils. Well, that's or, so uh, Italian. Yeah, to to add or, some sort of. Or, or white beans or something like that. I mean, that's uh yeah, sounds good. Yeah, that's uh, you know that it's it's that thing where a little bit of bitter on the palate, everything else is more vivid. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. it's not just sweet and sour and salty, um, and fatty, but a, a little bit of bitter. It, it's a fifth point that sets everything off. That's that's what's a little bit different about the Italian palate and in, in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Wine with and that. You're, you're going to talk yeah, about. I mean, Oh, well, 
that's got to be that, a I mean, bit of a fight. Like a dislike? Well, yes, no. I mean, in general, uh, this time of the year, I think always, as soon as it cools off a little bit, I, I start thinking about instead of the 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 crisp, bright, fruity whites, um, you know, the citrusy whites, the tropical whites that we think of in the summertime, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the rosés with like berry aromas and that sort of thing. I think of things that have the the apple and pear aromas, and and all the variations on that, and all the variations on the other, you know, autumnal harvest fruit kind of thing, quince and all that. Um, so riesling, which doesn't necessarily have that, always comes to mind um, because it's so incredibly different from where it's from. Uh, depending upon where it's from, I should say, you know, riesling reflects terroir probably more as much or more than any other. Uh, single grape, certainly any other white grape. That's interesting. Why is I mean, that? Why do you think? Um, because it's grown in so many climates. Mm. You know, that's mm-hmm. in uh, from really pretty cool places in in Germany to uh, some areas that are warmer in Austria, uh, but damp to Australia, to uh, British Columbia, to Western New York, to okay. <laughs> you know, at, at all I didn't over the realize place. Riesling grew in Western New York. The, there is uh, oh, there is cool. a producer in Piemonte that grows Riesling. Huh. That that is pretty remarkable. Cool. That's neat. Um, has exactly one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's sort of shocking what. Uh, what are some the of your? But but even even the different. The the three big areas for for Riesling that you think of you think of, uh, Germany, but the classical regions like the, the. The Mosul, the Rhine, the Sarre, the Ruhr, uh, the Nache, the, all of these areas, right? And they all have slightly different characteristics. The most classical ones being some of the, the great vineyards in the Rhine and, and uh, the Mosul, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those you expect to have a brightness, a, 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 a petroly, grapey, uh, you know, mineral and like joyous, sunny fruit character but but sunny in in a cool place there's not the that tropical or citrusy kind of thing that's there it's a it's a very pure fruit character with a lot of mineral um that that gives it its definition um in alsace um you think of something that is often fermented drier than in germany it does get riper the weather is sunnier hmm. um so bigger bodied, uh, more viscous usually, without being more sweet, and they don't have tradition for making sweet wines as famously, into the different levels of sweetness uh, as you see in Germany, like the Spätlese and Auschlese and Birkenauschlese and so on and so on. So they don't um, do that in France, that in Alsace. That's what you're yeah, saying. N- not in Alsace. No, I didn't know that. Um, okay, interesting. And a lot, of, while a lot of the flavors are the same, of the fruits, uh, and and Again, no wood treatment, just like in in Germany, or no, so no, it all, not it's not marked by wood treatment. It all goes into steel, um, steel, cement, um, oh. uh, ceramic, terracotta. Wow. Okay. Uh, old barrels, you know, like huge old barrels is is really and the old the, ones. The, just the don't have tradition. any. They don't have any effect. Or yeah, very there's little. no seasoning. There's no, there's yeah. no seasoning. They're there. done. Like with with small oak barrels, mm-hmm. uh, where like Bordeaux gets seasoned or. 
mm-hmm. that what's been adopted in from Burgundy to California Chardonnay and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that is is interesting is uh, th- those wines have such a different personality, same grape, but such a different personality and purpose with food. Um, the bright light Rieslings from the Mosul, let's say a cabinet, which is a pretty dry style because the alcohol is lower um, because there's a brightness and a finesse that's very different from uh, the, the Riesling that's coming out of some uh, you know, famous old producer or, or, or new producer, Sipmac or Trembach or somebody in uh, in um, you know the towns in Alsace, Ribouville and Unibir and whatnot. Um, Austria to me is kind of the sleeper. I have a great affection for the great producers of Riesling in Austria. They're the same ones that produce the greatest Grunewaldliner. And Austria has a bunch of different regions that grow interesting wine and and Riesling in several of them. Uh, the one area it's about an hour from Vienna uh, up the the Danau, the Danube, hmm. uh, is the Wachau. And there, there are a couple of growers there. Uh, Hiosberger is is one that I love maybe the most. Um, Nol also, K-N-O-L-L, uh, is another producer that really incredibly age-worthy, big-bodied, uh, big personality, uh, mineral in a very different way. This is a this is much more of a continental climate in uh, in that the seasons are all strong in this part of Austria. And the summers are pretty warm. So you get body from the ripeness. Uh, but it's it's damp in the fall. And a lot of times, like Hjusberger is pretty famous for, they harvest uh, with uh, a lot of botrytis. And they harvest very, very late. So the concentration of the grapes is is tremendous from this. this what The botrytis is a, uh, a, what they'll call noble rot. Or it's a, it's a mold, basically, that desiccates the grapes a bit. And when you crush them, uh, the juice is very concentrated. So I, I always think that's, you know, just like a, a very, very natural way of, if not cheating, uh, it's it's a little bit like reducing stock to make a sauce, you know? Mm-hmm. When you say late in the season, is it like October or when? Uh, I mean, the, a lot of stuff is still just hanging on the vine right now. Wow, that's neat. Interesting. Kind of. You know, in, in late October. So, um but yeah, it's and that's both and that's Grunewaldliner too, which is which is ripe earlier than Riesling usually. Well, and with the temperatures of the planet getting warmer, it's probably affecting that. Yeah, yeah. It also means that some of these things will, it, in in some of these cooler areas, it just means that the vintages are more often successful. Um, but maybe not for long term aging. That's what hmm. what I'm what I'm wondering about. You know, in a lot of the places where the well, climate is affecting them. How does that, why does that affect long-term aging? Um, because the acids are not quite as high and not quite as stable. Okay. Um, and you need that for and, long-term. And, and honestly, if you want a harvest to be great, uh, the old rule in Germany is like a, a good harvest is 100, 100 days on the vine, the fruit. Mm-hmm. A great harvest, the greatest harvest have like 120. Wow, okay. If it's ripening faster... That's less time on the vine. And it's not that just getting the sugar to a level is not how you make quality. That fruit having a story to tell of its entire life, of it being long and interesting and there being struggles, I mean, that's what makes great theater, right? Yes. It's also what makes great wine. 
you know, getting to the finish line after all of these trials. Yeah. That, you know, that, that's what makes, makes for an interesting want. story. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep, and and got it. if you're, if you're drinking it like Dr. Pepper, it's one thing. If you're drinking it as part of a meal and that has a dynamic, you know, personality to add to what you're taking in, you know, there's a whole different set of relationships developing there. So when we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, we're going to get back on the ball, uh, back to a little more apples and pears and get into the autumn vegetables on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WYPR. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, we've been getting into apples and pears and starting on a little bit of veggies, and then you got me down the, the Riesling rabbit hole. Which was fun. Um, yeah, and that's... And Riesling and Grunewald Lina, all the Central European whites, it's a good time of the year to explore those things. And honestly, as you head towards Thanksgiving, that's one thing to think about. A lot of those wines, wines from Alsace, um... The the big impressive Grunewald leaners from the great producers, you know th- those are those are things that really 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 successful with Thanksgiving dinner. That's a, a lot more than a, a big oaky bottle of, of Chardonnay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, well, yeah, which but, is what a lot of people but, think but, of. I think yeah, well, they, they 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 also have the they're going to be pleasing because they taste of the fruit that they come from. Exactly. Um, so that's that's good for a wide audience, mm-hmm. but they'll also deal with the the sweet and sour on the table, now, and. You need you need a little bit of acid. You need a little bit of sugar to deal with those things, and it does it perfectly. You know, one of the uh, just a tiny bit off topic, but still this time of the year. So at the farm, I have at least, if not more, I would say fifty black walnut trees, and they are old, and they are dropping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of black walnuts. And I just had my farmer uh, over for lunch because the people that I bought the farm from, now that my house is done, I can have people over. Uh, and I so I had lunch on Sunday with, with Stan and Nancy and Donald, who is the farmer who lives next door to me, who farms my land. And he his eyes lit up when I said, when I'm, because we were sitting at the table looking out at the black walnut trees, and uh, he had said how they lost their leaves first. They always do. And I said, yeah, and there's also hundreds of black walnuts down in that field right there. And I said, you know, that was my mother's favorite cake. And my as, as I've said many times, my parents are from York, Pennsylvania, back eight generations. And my, my great-grandmother and grandmother used to always make black walnut cake, which is a white cake and with white icing and has all these just gorgeous black walnut pieces in it. And his eyes just lit up because his wife used to make it too and, you know, her mom. And it's just so traditional in our area, obviously, because we have apparently a million black walnut trees where we live. And, um, I mean, those things are so hard to get out of their shell and such a mess. 
I mean, it's unbelievable, but I would, I really want to, you know, be able to, to incorporate some of those into, uh, uh, you know, our recipes at the restaurant. So we'll have to figure it out for next year. Um, if there's some sort of secret way to uh, get black walnuts out of their shell, please email me immediately. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm excited about that opportunity at the farm as well. I love walnut cake. So you have a recipe for one? It's pretty straightforward white cake, but, you know, you just incorporate the, the ground walnuts in and, and with anything that's a walnut or a, sh- a nut in a shell, you just want to make sure there aren't, there is no shell left uh, in the sections between the pieces of the walnut and that you grind it nice and fine. That would be the biggest thing. But, yeah, the white icing is one of those very old sort of, you know, very simple white icing recipes. But, you know, you were talking about with the apples and pears moving into talking about dessert. I think it would be so nice to have some poached apples with that cake as well, or or poached pears. Um, I think fresh would be a little weird with the cake, but uh, uh, little little apple cider ice cream. That would be really good and easy to make. I like to I like to reduce down my apple cider when I go to make ice cream with it, because you need to you know you were talking about intensifying flavors. You need to intensify the flavor of that cider, and also you need to have the right texture of the cider. Or excuse me, the right level of water left in the cider in order to add it into the cream or milk, however you're making your yeah. ice cream. Um, but yeah, that that's the, you know, I like to reduce it down with a little bit of lemon and lime juice because it just, you know, gives that brightness um, at the end. And um, and then add it. I, I make my ice cream with all cream. Most pastry chefs do not make ice cream that way. Um, I do seven whole, uh, excuse me, seven uh, yolks um, per cup of cream. Uh, so it's pretty heavy on the yolks as well. And then sugar, whatever, you know, level of sugar is needed. And with the apple cider, I literally don't think you need to add anything else. The reduced apple cider, the cream, the eggs, and, um, you know, you can balance it out with sugar if you feel you need it. But just taste it and then churn it. It sounds delicious. I wonder if my cardiologist is good with it. Uh, probably not. <laughs> you can always do half milk, half cream. The uh, That's but the reason I was asking about a recipe for the walnut cake is is not so much. Um, honestly, I'm curious for myself because my great grandmother used to make walnut cake as well, mm-hmm. and but she would make an icing. Uh, she would make something like a buttercream, mm. but she would add uh, caramel to it, and she would toast and crush the. She would toast and crush the walnuts. And basically make them into a paste, and that would be part of that icing, which is kind of wild. That sounds good. It, it would. It sounds like it would be particularly grainy, but it was not. Cindy, can we talk Tartar Town? Yes. I, a, a lot. A lot of people. I think that's that's one of those things that's like a trigger for people. They either love Tartar Town and the idea of it, um, or they're just not into it. Well, it's so different from an American. What we're used to is an apple tart. So, you know, if you're trying to make it into an apple tart, yeah, or apple pie, it's not going to be that. So um, it is the idea that the pastry is absorbing all that wonderful flavor of the apple and the caramelized sugar. And the pastry really is as good as anything. So it's it's a it's a it's a, um, a tart dough recipe. And then you roll that out. Uh, you're caramelizing the apples in the pan finishing it by covering with the pastry and baking it in the oven. And uh, yeah, it's, and I mean, if there was ever a use just like our apple pie for uh, an ice cream, uh, there there it is right there because a nice piece of ice cream on top of that is a scoop of ice cream on top of that is awfully good. But nice, and nice when it comes warm out of the oven. I think for me, the, the, 
the biggest trick is getting everything in the, whether you're using a, let's say you're using a cast iron pan or you're using a saute pan or whatever it might be, uh, or one of the like old fashioned copper molds for a ta ta ta. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're using one of those guys, it, how deep is it? And what kind of apple you're using and, and just how much moisture those apples have. Because if you're using something like a stamen, those things are like bricks. They have incredible flavor, but you've got to cook them for literally hours. Which is not right. You don't want that for a tart well, I, I do, but do you have the hours? Okay. <laughs> because you don't want it to turn into a brick, but because they're so dense, they have incredible flavor. And when they do caramelize, it happens really slowly and there's great intensity to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And and they also, frankly, the, the caramelization and the realization of the natural sugar and the sugar that you add to it, depending on what kind you use and if it's seasoned or if you add a little, you know, gavados or whatever it might be to, to to you know, give it a little zhuzh. Um, that that can be interesting. Grannies are always good in that yeah. recipe. I like granny smiths and, in there. And they, they don't take that kind of time. They still take just about an hour. Yeah, oh, for sure. The, the, the question is, at what point, you know, what point do you need to be to be steamed out enough on the apples uh, that when you add the pastry dough on top, because it's an upside down apple tart, right? Ta, ta, ta. Right. That that when when you add the the pastry dough, the pie crust, w- w- whatever you're choosing to use, and for me, like it's an old fashioned flaky pie crust is usually the best thing for me, um, and 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 not too thick, but. Uh, that's I think sometimes what people do. They'll do something too thick, or they'll do they'll add puff pastry or something, and it just gets very strange. Yeah, puff pastry doesn't work. No, it's um, too fine. Yeah, I, I had a piece in a restaurant once where they did like phyllo dough, and it was just like oh no, that's well, that's not what a tarte like, tatin is. So no, it was you're, like you're making something crackers. else when you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're making something not good. <laughs> um, but but I've had a version of that pie crust one time, and I wanted to do it myself. That reminded me a little. It was it was seasoned with some spices, and I thought, what if I'd seasoned that pie crust like pan de pis, mm-hmm. you know, like a, like gingerbread? Mm-hmm. And what would that be like as a, as a, that like final accent? So you're saying put the you know? the spices in the in the pastry dough, no, not with the apples, but in the dough. Put yeah, it, put oh, it in that the dough. sounds good. Yeah, you could do that. Why put, not? Put in the dough. Just be careful with it, how much you put in there. Yeah, no question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and exactly how you add, you know, exactly how you add it, and mm-hmm. and uh, and and what choices you make in doing that. But yeah, I just I, I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing. A lot of times people will do a lot to season or play with the apples. I don't like the monkey with the apples too much, but I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I just and like I don't to... I don't I I don't mind doing it where I use honey instead of the sugar. Uh, for grannies, it's easier to do them for something like a stamen where you you need the sugar. Um, but the honey gets that caramelized honey uh, flavor that has a particular aroma that Definitely I also like. Definitely a different tone. So if you're doing that, yeah. it's just not traditional, but it could be good. Yeah. No, just a, I don't know. I thought those were interesting variations. I've had a lot of the bad variations. So You know, when we, when we first got our apples, we had some that were a little over. And um, I I ended up making an apple puree out of them. And I think that that 
you know, what what we have nowadays to use for equipment in kitchens is just so amazing. You know, I used the Vita Prep and it just pureed it into oblivion and it made just such a gorgeous texture. I can see my mom, my mom used to make applesauce all the time and, you know, in, in this time of the year and I can see her with the food mill in her hand and how much work that was for her to do for a family of, you know, at one time five people and, um, you know, the, the Vita Prep is such, you know, these pieces of equipment are so amazing. And it purees things so beautifully and consistently and evenly. And, you know, so, but that, that yeah, that applesauce, I never intended to make applesauce with those apples. But wow, was it good. And it almost felt mousse-like in texture. It was really great. That's, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Hey, would you take a second? You were talking about broccoli soup and you made a lot of different variations oh. that were quite good over the years. Yeah. And it's definitely time and it's a great utilizer and you do. You know, you get broccoli, you wonder what to do with the stems. Mm, um, make soup. But, so, yeah, so t- take two minutes and sure, talk about that. Sure, Well, I, it's very s- simple. I saute onions, and, and I was teaching the cooks how to make it when I did it because I don't make broccoli soup very often, and I was making it for our amuse-bouche or hors d'oeuvre, whatever you want to call it, which is the gift that comes from me um, as the guest sits down after they've gotten their, their order. Uh, excuse me, their, let me re-say that which is the gift that comes from me um, and the kitchen when the guest sits down after they have their water service or their first cocktail or glass of wine. And um, just gently saute the onions and shallots and butter. Do not allow any caramelization to happen, no color. Um, Add If you're going to add stock, it can either be water, salt, or it can be a, a blonde chicken stock and bring that up to a boil. And then we wash the broccoli very carefully. A little bit like cauliflower, broccoli can hold bugs. So you really want to immerse it in a sink full of water to clean it. No, you, no bug soup. Yeah. Please. You know, oftentimes there are flies in it. I hate saying that out loud. But, you know, anyway, so wash the, the product well, drain it, and then cut it into large pieces and use the stem. And you can certainly use the tops if you haven't already used that for something else. And add that to the boiling water uh, or stock and cook it until you want it to retain vitamins. You want it to retain its color. So just until it's tender, uh, I do add a little bit of cream at the end. You don't have to, but I do like it that way. Or you can do 50% cream, 50% stock, or you could do all cream. It's up to you uh, instead of using the stock at all. And um, and then I had just, you, you mentioned Martine earlier, uh, I had just... Uh, gotten his cheese together for the restaurant where he's our chef and um and uh I had scraps of mimolet. Well, I didn't have to have scraps of mimolet. I had scraps of mimolet because I wanted to eat some when I cut it for him and um to serve on the cheese cart and uh it was a really good piece of mimolet and I hadn't had it in years. Actually I hadn't had mimolet since before COVID and um and so uh uh, I had those scraps and had saved them and added that into the soup at the end and a little bit of Reggiano and pureed that in in the blender. And I didn't have to strain the soup, which is nice. It's nice not to have to have that step. Uh, it pureed very, very nicely and, and just a little salt and pepper. And that's it. That's all it took. Now, that's an easy, people enjoy it kind of an item. I know my, my girls are big fans of... Uh, what they'll call broccoli popcorn, which is literally <laughs> broccoli seasoned with good oil and salt, and uh, and you know lay it out on a sheet pan in very small pieces, and toast it in the oven till like, it starts to get a little bit crispy, mm-hmm. and then it's then an option. It's optional when it comes out to hit it with a little bit of uh, great Reggiano or not, and uh, those girls will just pick it up and. <laughs> That's great. Good. 
you know, you literally can toss it in a bowl like popcorn. All right, now I'm hungry. <laughs> Me too. And ready for a glass of Riesling. No, I'm not, but I wish oh, I could. <laughs> that's the brec- breakfast wine of champions. Oh, boy. So speaking of champions, game's over. Mm-hmm. That's all we've got time to talk about. If you want to correspond with the program, uh, email us at foremanwolf at wipr.org. If you want to download this episode or any one of the others, you can go to the WIPR website, wipr.org, and look for the Foreman Wolf page, and there's a whole menu of goodies there. And you can listen to us fight on so many topics after all these years <laughs> by downloading the program. Uh, if you want to follow Chef Sandy Wolf on social media, you can follow me on Instagram or uh, Facebook as Chef Wolf. And I am the real Tony Foreman on Instagram. And I thank you for listening. Happy Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>